0: The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Well, it is is so uh, great that you're here today. Um, How many of you are glad that you're here today? Yeah. That was more of a clap than a raise hand uh, thing, so uh, I'm going to start all over again uh, this sermon. Uh, we'll start with this. It's so great to have you here today. No, 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 see? Take three. Okay, we're, <laughs> you wait for the question. I, I make the statement, then, I, then the question, then the response. Got it? All right. All right. Uh, it's so great that you're here today. How many of you are glad that you're here today? It would have been embarrassing if it took four times. I'm just saying. Um, You know that there's more going on today, uh, this decision that you made to be here. We all made a decision uh, to come here today, but uh, there's more going on here than you probably um, first imagined. It isn't just about the benefits and blessings of gathering together as the church, although there are uh, many. uh, That's great on its own uh, merit. There's something much bigger going on. uh, Something far more important and you might expect that in the introduction i would tell you what that is and then we would unpack that but i'm not going to tell you what that is just yet Uh, because in today's passage jesus can i say it this way jesus picks a fight uh, with some religious leaders over sabbath observance And he does it to make a point, actually, not so much about the Sabbath, though we're going to study that on the way through the passage, but but he does it not so much to say things about the Sabbath as, as much to make a point about something else, something other than the Sabbath, as important as the Sabbath was for them. And again, I'm not going to tell you what that is yet, and, uh, but I have a feeling that as we study the passage, you're going to kind of feel the same way about it as those original hearers felt about it, that you're going to experience the same impact, each of us in this room, as those uh, people experienced it when Jesus was with them on that day. And so let's read the passage. Luke chapter 6 is where we're, we are. We're going to do the first 11 verses of this chapter. Uh, this is Luke's gospel, chapter 6. On a Sabbath... While he was going through the grain fields, that's Jesus, uh, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, At them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they, that's the Pharisees, were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray. Our God and Father, I pray that um, as we spend this time together this morning in your word, and uh, later celebrating, remembering uh, at the Lord's table. God, I pray that you would bring healing uh, to those who are hurting. God, I pray that you would bring growth and understanding to all of us. God, I pray that you would bring a challenge to our way of thinking. God, that you would do all this by the power of your Holy Spirit and by the preaching of your word in these moments. Father, we thank you for your love for us. That makes it possible for us to be here, makes it possible for us to be the church. God, we see it as a true gift from your hand. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's talk about this. Real Sabbath rest, we're going to get an understanding of what that is, but real Sabbath rest is experienced when you realize a certain things. The first of those is that it's not about the restrictive rules. It's not... Sabbath rest is not about the restrictive rules. Two incidents happened on two different Sabbath days in the text here. And uh, before we get into all of that, though, I think it's important for us to understand what the Bible says about Sabbath. And uh, for that, we actually have to go back to uh, the book of Exodus and see the fourth uh, commandment. Uh, You remember the Ten Commandments, right? Everybody remember those? Uh, Do you know that they're found in the book of Exodus? Uh, chapter 20 Uh, you can turn there if you like it's also going to be on the screen so exodus chapter uh, 20 and verse 8 is the fourth commandment and here's what uh, was written uh, for moses uh, by the lord Uh, remember the sabbath day uh, to keep it holy six days you shall labor and do all your work but the seventh day is a sabbath to the lord your god On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner. Make sure your livestock don't work. I don't even know how you prevent that. Um, Or the sojourner who is with you in your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. And made it holy or set it apart. Now, quiz, first of all, out of the gates, which day is he referring to here? Day of the week. Which day of the week is it? Which day of the week is it? Okay, Saturday people raise your hand. Sunday people raise your hand. Eh, Saturday. Right, it's Saturday because this is we're, we're talking in the context of the Jewish people of the of, of, of what God had entrusted to them. The first day of the week. Check your calendar, uh, paper ones. Uh, it starts with Sunday. First day of the week runs through to Saturday. If you've always wondered why that is, it's because Saturday is indeed the seventh day, and God created on all the other days. The Sabbath uh, is Saturday, and, and so what we have here in Exodus chapter twenty is that's pretty much. The sum total of what the scriptures have to say about uh, the Sabbath. Uh, Don't work. Rest from work. And not a lot of specifics beyond making sure your livestock don't work. I suppose that's, you're not going to drive them. You're not going to use them to get anywhere. You're not going to work them in the fields. You're going to make sure, in other words, that there's this day set aside from labor now if that's all we have are are these verses then we would all agree that we would have no trouble finding exceptions to the rule that there might be things that come up where we might weigh it out and go is this really work or is this not work that there are nuanced applications of the law that would give us some problems along the way and we're going to look at how that was handled in a few moments. But back to Jesus for a second. In those first two verses, incident number one, on the Sabbath, the holy day set apart, no work. Jesus and his followers are making their way along on the Sabbath day. And they're walking through a grain field and they're hungry. They didn't have any food with them. And, um, and so they, they plucked some grain from a field that they were passing through and they took the grain and they just kind of rubbed it in their hands to separate the edible part of the grain and, and, and the chaff that was around it to get rid of that. They were essentially what they were doing was threshing the grain. And then they were taking the edible part and they were eating it. Now at first glance, you might say they, they stole the grain. It wasn't their grain, but in fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, Uh, The Jews were given permission that when they were on a journey like that, if they were passing by their neighbor's grain field and they needed to have a little something to eat, that they could actually take some grain and they could eat it. They were not permitted to take a sickle and harvest that would be stealing, but they were allowed to take a little bit for personal use, and there was, this was the way God kind of provided for and cared for his people. This is roughly equivalent to one of those routes that you see on the highway. If you're making your way to Kingston, you stop at the route, you pick up a burger and fries, and, and, you, and you keep going. Now, in that case, you pay for it. In this case, God was just providing through the community. You didn't even have to pay for the burger and fries, the grain in this case. So, so the issue was not the taking of the grain. The issue in this case, and the Pharisees are going to bring this up, the issue for them was that they took it on the Sabbath and they threshed it in their hands and they therefore, they worked. Now, if you go back to Exodus 20 and you look there and you go, well, I guess by the most stringent interpretation, we might say that they were working. But most of us in common sense would say, that's ridiculous. Wouldn't we? We would say that's, that's ridiculous. And so that's the kind of incident number one. And the Pharisees all bent out of shape. Uh, not that it happened, but that it happened on the Sabbath. The Bible says no such thing. They're merely making up their own rules. Incident number two happens in verse 6, 7, and 8. And a man was there whose right hand was withered withered, um, paralyzed. Um, it had atrophied in any sense. He, he couldn't use his hand and it was his, it was his right hand, um, which, uh, no offense to lefties. Raise your left hand if you're a lefty, uh, no offense to you, but the Bible talks about the right hand being the hand of strength. All right. So uh, you can deal with that before the Lord. Um, but the right hand is the right of strength. So this is significant. I mean, you have to ask yourself the question, why was it so significant that it was his right hand it was his hand of strength. This man was without his right hand and there was some shame attached to this in the culture. Now, there's nothing whatsoever in the Bible anywhere in any of the Sabbath laws that say that healing him was unlawful, but healing is a profession. And therefore, when one heals, one is, help me, they're working. And so the Pharisees, In their minds, those who had created all these other rules to attach to the Sabbath, they were like, you're working. If you heal him, you're working. They had all these extra written interpretations and applications of the law that included this stipulation that the only way you could heal or help to bring healing to somebody was if it was a life-threatening situation. Now, this man presumably had lived with this withered hand, this paralyzed hand for some time. So this was not a life-threatening situation at all. He was not in danger of dying. Therefore, in their minds, hey, listen, you can wait another day to be healed. And what we find from the text is Jesus has a problem with that. And I'm so glad he had a problem with that these pharisees were essentially saying hey you know what your stuff, suffering's not so bad that it couldn't go on another day and who among us as human beings should be judging whether or not a person's suffering should be continuing another day we ought to be working with all of our strength to see that people are healed right when they can be healed you know, and Jesus, in saying all of this, is not denying the importance of the Sabbath. It's important to say this at this point. He's going to challenge both of these situations. And, and he's not minimizing the importance, the biblical importance of Sabbath. In fact, let me give you four reasons why we have Sabbath. First of all, this it's, it's part of the creation narrative before the fall, before sin entered into the world. God created everything. He says in six days, I created everything on the seventh day. I rested therefore among human beings, work is going to be a good thing. It's a blessing to work. I'm going to give you things to do, but on one day of the week, on the last day of the week, I'm going to ask that you not work. That was put in place from the creation. And so this observance of Sabbath is something that's tied into the very creative purposes of our God. It's there from the beginning. Secondly, it speaks to our human need for rest. We need rest. We need good rest. We need regular rest. We need in the principle that we're going to talk about. We need one in seven rest. The Creator knows we need that. Some of us forget. A third, why is the Sabbath so important? It's part of our most important legal code. The most important legal code that history has ever seen, the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments reflect the very holiness and character of God. Again, it's rooted in who He is. And then fourth, Sabbath prefigures our final rest in eternity with our God. When everything that wearies us will be done away with. All of our labor, all of our striving against sin, death itself that wearies us is going to be done away with. And so the the taking of a Sabbath is like this. It's like this prophecy. It's, It's this weekly prophecy where we're going. This is awesome that I get to rest today. But it's just a taste of Of what I'm going to get someday when I'm with the Lord. Jesus upheld all of this, but the the Jewish people made Sabbath observance, this litmus test of obedience and faithfulness to God in a way that God never intended. The problem was that it became mere observance and not an act of the heart. And the rules that they made that were not from the Bible made the Sabbath oppressive rather than joyful. And to be honest with you, we've had the same problem. Where we've attached rules to things that God has said, non-biblical, extra-biblical rules, if you will. To things that God has said that have actually taken the joy out of walking with Christ and serving him. We have trouble distinguishing, for example, let me show you this uh, up on the screen. We have trouble distinguishing between command, principle, and application. I hope that this is helpful to you. We have trouble distinguishing between these three things as the Pharisees were having trouble distinguishing between these three things in the passage. Let me give you an example of this. Let's talk for, for, for a moment outside of the Sabbath discussion to help us understand it, and then we'll bring it back to the Sabbath discussion, but let's talk about uh, alcohol. The command in scriptures, the the clearest command that we have about alcohol in the scriptures is Ephesians 5.18 that simply says this, uh, be not drunk with wine. Uh, Be not drunk with wine. By the way, that doesn't uh, therefore mean that you can be drunk with beer. (laughs) Do we all understand that? Some of you are not willing to admit that that's not what it means. Um, Be not drunk with wine uh, is not... Uh, a blanket prohibition against all alcohol in fact search the scriptures all parts of the scriptures beginning to end and you will not find a single direct prohibition against drinking alcohol i hope you all uh, believe that and know that to be true so but the command is be not drunk with wine the principle is this The principle is that any impairment hinders self-control and leads to situations where we hurt ourselves and others. I see a lot of nodding heads. That's probably because you've had some experience with this. As I have. We know the truth of this. I'm going to read it again. The principle is that any impairment hinders self-control and leads to a situation that causes to hurt ourselves and others. Now, the application coming out of that, be not drunk with wine, impairment, impairment causes hurt because of lack of self-control. Now the applications are varied and people can take the application of this command and principle applied in all kinds of different ways. Let me give you some examples. One person um, may choose uh, for themselves based on what they know of the scriptures to drink uh, in moderation and only in certain situations. So I'll drink if I'm at a wedding and there's wine. I'll have a glass of wine. Period. I'll have a, I'll have a, a I'll have a can of beer with the, with the game on Sunday. That's it. Once in a while, on special occasions, they drink in moderation. Alcohol is not is not like a defining thing for you or for your family. But if it if it happens, I I can drink and I, I'm never giving myself to drunkenness. That's one way that a person could apply that. Another may choose, um, abstinence. I just feel like I need to take a full step back from that. And I could speak from personal experience. I am an abstainer. I've not had anything to drink, uh, since before I was actually legal to drink. (laughs) Did you like the pause for effect? Right. You, You got what happened there. I haven't had anything to drink in, um, in, uh, 30, almost 40 years. All right. So, so, um, So I choose to be an abstainer. Why? Because I've seen the carnage in my own extended family of alcoholism. And I know that when I do things, no surprise to any of you who know me, I do things to an extreme. I I don't do very much in moderation. And so I just know that if I drank and I liked it, I would like it a lot and I would want to do it a lot. Is that fair? Anybody else like me? you would just say that's me. And, and so I choose abstinence. So that's another way that that can be applied. But because I choose abstinence does not mean I'm looking down on the person who drinks in moderation once in a while. Understand application and the difference. All right. And then a third person may apply it in a very different way and just say like, I'm, I'm I feel like I'm okay with wine and I'm okay with the occasional beer, but I just think that hard liquor is over the line for me. And so there's just all kinds of way. I say all that by illustration to say there's all kinds of way that this can be applied. Now, the problem comes when someone takes application and elevates it to the level of command. And and when someone says, um, I believe that the best course of action is abstinence. Therefore, you should all be abstainers and any good Christian is going to be an abstainer. How many people have heard a sermon like that? Sadly, not based on scripture. Based on application. And we should be very careful about going that far. We, it's just wrong to do that. So back to Sabbath keeping now. What happened uh, to the Pharisees and many... Just stick your toes out so I can step on them here for a second. What happened to the Pharisees and many Pentecostals and Catholics and Baptists and brethren and Reformed in more recent times was that they confused command and application with regard to Sabbath. You see, the command is to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, that they were not to work. The principle is one of rest. It's not about the day. It's not about all the legalism we would attach to the day. The principle is rest, that God gave us the blessing, the awesome blessing. God gave us a gift. He said to us, you can actually take a day off. I mean, I'm hearing that among, um, among employment situations today, that when employees are given the option between getting a raise or getting more vacation time, that the option they're going for is more vacation time. Did you know that? We love time off. And God gave it to us before we even tainted this world with sin. God said to us, you can take time off one in seven. Yeah, and it's an awesome gift from him. That's the principle. That's what God wants us to hear. And the application then is varied. It can play out in so many different ways for us. Some find rest at the beach or on the ski slopes. In other words, away from the routine, doing something leisurely. Others prefer a quiet day at home. Some um, would like to come home from work and, and, and actually swing a hammer and, and do some renovation. I would love to do that if I knew how to use a hammer, <laughs> but I don't. So that's not relaxing to me at all. But for some guys who maybe sit at a desk all day long to come home and on the weekend, just kind of pound away at things or work in their workshop and create something to them, that's restful. But on its face, some of us might say, well, that that's working you've got machinery running you're 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 cutting you're uh, it's just it seems like work it seems like threshing grain it seems like healing and there would be rules around some of that some of you grew up in homes and in church situations where kids weren't allowed to play soccer on sundays what play how is play work that somehow the concept of rest became distorted and twisted. And it's like, honestly, it's like, it's like Luke 6, 1 to 11 didn't even exist in those churches. Where Jesus is challenging the very notions of the legalism that was attaching itself to the concept of Sabbath. Some people Sabbath rest by visiting with friends and family. And for some, that is work. And would be anything but restful. I can see I'm hitting the mark for many of you. <laughs> for some, the Sabbath is Sunday. Because you don't work. But please understand, it's not my Sabbath. It's not our worship team's Sabbath. Jordans are our staff who are here early and stay late. And it's not a Sabbath day for us. For me, Monday is a Sabbath. And I love that the Apostle Paul helped us with this. And I want to show you this passage over in Romans chapter 14, just a few verses here. Pretty sure I don't have these uh, for you on the screen. Romans 14, 5 and 6, I'll read these, but you can write them down. Paul writes, in this whole idea of us having love for one another and in the realm of Christian liberty and the freedoms to apply the scriptural principles... According to our conscience, he says one person esteems one day as better than another. And he's dealing with legalism where some people were saying it has to be this way. It has to be this day. You have to do this. And he's saying, no, you don't. One person esteems one day as better than another. While another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And so really... It doesn't matter what day it is. The problem comes when someone misses the principle and makes the application a command, as I've already said, concerning alcohol. It's not about whether someone can play sports on Sunday or whether you have to eat fish on Fridays. You see, no one said those things. No one in the Bible said those things. It's it's not found anywhere in the scriptures. And all of that to say, this is a really long first point, and I promise that points two and three are not as long. All that to say, real Sabbath rest is is not about the restrictive rules. It's not. In fact, it's mostly about, and we've already hinted at this, it's mostly about the personal benefits. It's mostly about the gift that God wants to give to us. And addressing the Pharisees' nonsense about his disciples eating grain, Jesus gives an Old Testament example in Uh, verses three and four let's just look at those again verses three and four jesus answered them "Uh, have you not read what david did when he was hungry he and those who were with him how he entered the house of god that was the tabernacle at the time and he took and ate the bread of the presence this was a ceremonial bread that was set out every single day and it, it gives us some understanding here it's not lawful for any but the priest to eat this and he also gave it to uh, those who are with him. And if you want to jot this down, just in your notes, of uh, 1 Samuel 21, the first six verses, 1 Samuel 21. That's where you're going to find that. We're not going to look at it, but you can look at that yourselves. And it, there's no condemnation. It's just this, these six verses just tell this story of David and his posse, and they show up at the tabernacle. They're hungry. Apparently, there were no standing grain fields, so they couldn't thrash anything. But there was bread that was made. They knew there was hot bread in the tabernacle. Let's go there. And they go, they ask the priest, and the priest gives them the bread, and they eat it. And, And it wasn't, listen, according to the ceremonial law, it was wrong for them to eat that bread, but they were hungry. And it was there. And nothing in the story hints at all, and nowhere else in the scripture is it hinted at all that this was something that was wrong. That they had sinned in this way. Because God is working for our benefit, not to make us subservient to regulations and stipulations. And I'll say this, even his own ceremonial ones. Jesus is making the point. It'd just be so good for us to hear this again. It's not about the rules. It's not about the rules. The ceremonial law is never meant to be absolute in its application. And I think about how this even applies to us because we really in the scriptures, the New Testament church has been given given just two ordinances to practice. One we practiced last Sunday, one we're practicing this Sunday. The two ordinances that have been given to us that were commanded to practice, one is baptism. And one is the Lord's table. And in both of those, uh, it would be very tempting for us to kind of create a whole bunch of rules where we would just say, listen, it has to be exactly like this every single time. And then to oppress people with that. When I think about a baptism, we believe by conviction that we ought to be baptizing by immersion, but we're not so nutso about it. That if someone comes to us after they've made their decision for Jesus Christ and yet they've been in a church where maybe um, pouring was practiced after a person comes to faith in Christ say like a Mennonite church so they come to us, hey, I was 16 years old. I came to faith in Christ. I got baptized by pouring at 17 years of age. Now I'm 20. I want to be a member of your church. Can I join or do I have to be rebaptized? And we're like, listen, it was after you made your commitment to Christ. We see timing as the more important thing, but the mode of baptism. We're not so crazy about immersion that we believe you have to be rebaptized. So we're 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 allowing The whole uh, blessing of God to reign over the situation without us becoming so legalistic about the ceremonial aspects of it. Baptism needs to be practiced. We understand that. The command is to baptize people. The word baptize means to immerse. And so we want to practice it in the way that the Bible says to practice it. But beyond that, the more important part is, are you being baptized at the right time? After you've made the decision yourself. And beyond that, we're open. And, and and then for the Lord's table, I, I just think about the kind of elements you use. Should you use grape juice or wine? And uh, you know, I've told the story before about the uh, Anglican church in my old hometown that got broken into because someone was uh, stealing. Uh, someone broke in. They knew that they used wine, so they broke in and they stole all the sacramental wine. Which my understanding is that it's not very good wine anyways, but so shows, shows how desperate they were. But, but that never happens in a church like ours because no one steals Welch's. <laughs> I mean, it's good juice, but, you know, it's only a couple bucks it's there. So. Um, so, you know, juice or wine? Or do you use crackers or bread? Do you use unleavened, no yeast in the bread because it's symbolic of the no sin in the body of Christ? Or is it okay to use any bread? And really, you start, some churches get hung up on all of these particulars, and, and we're just not in that place whatsoever because the ceremonial law is never meant to be absolute in its application. Think about who can lead it. And, um, I mean, again, in the Baptist church I was part of for many, many years, it, it had to be deacons, and we had to parade in a certain way and be dressed in a certain way. Remember the parade of deacons on communion Sundays? And, and, um, and no one else could do it. And, and for sure, women couldn't do it because that's somewhere in here. I th- no. And, and, and the ceremonial law is never meant to be absolute in its application. Okay, then the second incident, Jesus makes a point about the morality or perhaps we would say the immor- immorality of denying people what God wants for them. So verses 9 and 10, I take a look what he says uh, here. And Jesus uh, said to them, this is again now in the healing uh, thing, we have this man. And um, he tells the man, now he knows their thoughts, verse 8. He says to the man with the withered hand, come here and come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to the, back to the Pharisees, I ask you, is it?' and he completely corners them here. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy? What what are they going to say? Destroy and hurt people. But that's what he's painted them into this corner, or they've painted themselves into the corner with their rules, because now they're actually watching to see if he's going to do something good for somebody on the Sabbath. And their preference by watching for this is that he wouldn't help this man. That this man can suffer for another day. It's so ridiculous. Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful in the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save a life or destroy it? And after looking around at them, is there any answer from them here? I mean, I don't know what they're doing at this moment, looking at their own feet, looking at each other, staring at the sky. Nothing comes out, there's no answer. He looks around at them all and he said to them, he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so and his hand was restored. If this isn't Jesus picking a fight, I don't know what is. He's provoking this situation. Do you see it? He's provoking it. He's looking for a situation where he can teach those who want to hear the teaching, but challenge those who are in staunch rebellion to him. I mean, they were so concerned by their, 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 their own immoral rule-keeping that they would withhold good from this man when the power to heal him was right there. Again, they wanted him to experience the pain and shame of his infirmity for 24 more hours. I love this verse from Proverbs 3.27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. When it is in your power to do it. You see a need. You see someone hurting. You have the capacity to alleviate the hurt. And you walk away without doing something about it. We ought not to be doing that. That's what these Pharisees were doing. They knew this verse. You see, in Jesus thinking about the Sabbath as he sees it. This isn't something that ought to restrict the feeding of the hungry. If you're hungry, eat. If you need to thresh some wheat in your hand, thresh. It's not supposed to be something that hinders the healing of the sick, but just the opposite. It's, the Sabbath is supposed to bring blessing. It's supposed to bring healing. I mean, how many of us, as we go on vacation or we take a day off and, and we really take it and we really get the rest, we would actually use the word healing to describe what just happened to us. I mean, I've been working uh, three weeks straight and I finally got a day off and I felt so good at the end of it. I felt so refreshed. That's healing. That's the good thing that God wants for us. It's to bring blessing, relief, rest, healing, to satisfy us. It's a gift from the father to his children. And so let me ask you at this point, how good are you at taking Sabbath? Are you good at it? Are you, are you good at taking rest, of ceasing from work, of, of changing it up regularly? You see, because in, in society, I, I just have a feeling that we're all just a, a pretty tired bunch. Our society kind of says that we have to go hard all of the time. It's the, the Western mindset, it's the Protestant work ethic. We're driven to achieve more, to work harder. We're a tired bunch as a result. And, and society would say, when we stop and we don't do enough, and we're not working hard enough, then all of a sudden then we get, we get uh, plastered with this label of, you're lazy. And I'm not saying that there aren't lazy people around, and there are, and the Proverbs speak in spades to those who are lazy, who are sluggards. But that's a totally different sermon and we're not there today. God gave us a prescription for rest. It's a gift from him and we should fill that prescription every week. He made it possible that we could have this by giving us his son. So, so God's actually gone to some significant, the father's gone to some significant um, ends to sacrifice himself so that we could enjoy eternal rest and the, and the glimpses and tastes of rest until that day. He gave us his son, Jesus Christ. Again, the earthly rest prefigures the eternal rest, which is only possible by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's part of our salvation. I mean, you could say it this way. The cost of Sabbath was paid in the blood of Jesus Christ. And God offers it to us. It's a gift, free. And when we don't Sabbath, what do we miss? I should say at this point that I'm so grateful that our elders recognize that I was at a particular point of fatigue a few years ago and gave me an extended time of Sabbath, uh, a sabbatical, some time off. And during that time, and I did come back, um, remarkably changed and enjoying uh, rest, enjoying life like I wasn't in the years previous. But I read a book during that sabbatical called The Rest of God uh, by a man named Mark Buchanan. He's a Canadian. He was a pastor and now is a professor professor. Um, in Western Canada. And Mark writes this in his book. I was very impacted by this book. He says, Sabbath is when we stop. We slow down. We play. We rest. We dream. We wonder. We cease from that which is necessary and turn to that which gives life. And in the hush that descends, we listen. And what we hear. You know, what's so hard to hear in all the busyness of life is God himself speaking. It's a true gift from him. It's a personal benefit that God wants to give to us to enjoy his presence, to know he's there, to have an unshakable confidence that we belong to him. In the busyness of life, it's so easy to lose our sense of who we are and what our purpose on this earth is really all about and whether or not we're truly loved by him. But in the quiet, in the stillness, enjoying genuine rest that comes from him, we'll hear all of that. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. I'm pleased with you. You're not going to hear those things unless you rest, unless you Sabbath. God intends you for, to enjoy, for you to enjoy all of that. And so real Sabbath rest is experienced when you realize it's not about the restrictive rules. It's mostly about the personal uh, benefits. And now we come to it. It's entirely about the Lordship of Christ. That's what I meant when I said this whole A thing was about more than the Sabbath. It's about the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now look at the phrase back to verse 5. And he said to them. Again, this is in the context of where they're challenging the disciples eating the grain. He said to them, the son of man is lord of the Sabbath. Now the son of man is a reference to himself. It's a strong declaration of his divinity he's revealing something about who he is in this very moment the lord of the sabbath and the question that i think is is the most important part of this whole discussion is this is it answer this question in that phrase the son of man is lord of the sabbath what's the most important part the lord part or the sabbath part it's the lord part and, and the problem is that the Pharisees had elevated the Sabbath part. That Sabbath was more important than the very authority of God. More important than the word of God. And beyond that, all of the rules, all the stipulations, all the add-ons that they had brought were more important than the lordship of their God. And our tendency is to do what the religious leaders did, to make it about the day, to make it about the thing, to get so caught up in the rites and rituals of religion, whatever they might be. But it's not about that at all. I mean, Jesus is taking this discussion about the Sabbath and using it to his advantage to say something about himself. And when we figure that out, it has far-reaching implications for our lives, way beyond the observance of the day. It affects our actual worship of Christ. It impacts how we walk with him. It influences the way we serve him and work for Christ. Every decision I make, it colors every relationship I have. When I acknowledge the lordship of Christ, it has an all-encompassing, life-altering impact on me and the people around me. When I acknowledge the lordship of Christ. When he says the son of man is lord of the Sabbath. He's revealing that he is the son of God. That he is very God of very God. He's revealing his divinity by exercising his authority over this biblically prescribed high priority observance of the Sabbath. And he's asking everyone in the room. He was saying everyone... To everyone in that room. And he's saying it to everyone in this room. Will you acknowledge my authority over your life? Will you surrender to my lordship? Beyond all the rule keeping. Are you going to follow your way? Or God's way? Even now in this room, I can sense that as I say that, that there are those who are resisting and, and don't want to surrender their life to Christ in this way. Whenever authority is being exercised, I think we can count on resistance to authority, don't you think? Whether that's at a human level or not. Without exception, where God exercises authority, man exercises his futile, his futile resistance to that authority. It's a given. I mean, here we are in the very earliest encounter, encounters of Jesus in the gospel. We're in the first, the early part of Luke. And, and Jesus is already facing this intense opposition. And you can tell that there's a conflict over the lordship of Christ, over the authority of God in their lives. You can tell because of their reaction to him in this moment. Verse 11. We see this devious and deadly plan that's beginning to form already. But they, the Pharisees, were filled with fury. I mean, they were out of their minds with rage. It's violent. And they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. These are the earliest days of his ministry. It's years yet before he'll be arrested and crucified, but already they're plotting. They're so fed up with his exercise of authority because they knew they're losing their grip on things. And, you know, his own disciples are they're confused about it. They they don't they don't fully understand what son of man means. They're, They're not fully getting that they're walking around with someone who's claiming to be God the crowds that he's preaching to they don't they think he's a prophet they call him a prophet they call him a teacher but but you know you know who knew exactly what he was claiming to be the pharisees they understood it because it's the only way you can explain their rage they knew exactly what he was saying what he was claiming to be and thus the plot to get rid of him and to crucify him. But it's no matter. The Pharisees can't thwart his plans or who he is. And any rebellion in this room is as nothing to him. He can break through it. Because at the end of the day, no matter what, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Amen? Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over the Sabbath. He's Lord over creation. He's Lord over government and economies. He's Lord over this church. Jesus is Lord over your family and over your marriage. And he's Lord over you. And you can acknowledge him as Lord in your life. And when you do, you will experience all the goodness, all the blessing, all of the gifts All of the awesome things that God intends for you. So why wouldn't we? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father, it is uh, an awesome thing to... um, To be confronted with your authority in our lives. And I know uh, that it's uh, tough for every one of us in this room. And we would be lying. We would be as Pharisees if we were to deny that. That when you speak, it's hard for us uh, to fully acknowledge who you are. To do what you say. To live in the way that you intend for us to live. I thank you for the grace that you pour out on us, the irresistible grace. I thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives and in this room. I thank you, Father, that you bear with us and you're patient with us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of the truth. And so, Father, we're asking for your patience again as we... Again, seek to acknowledge that you are Lord, that you have the authority, that you are over all things. Father, I pray that your presence would be in this room as we continue our worship and as we take the time to remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We Thank you for the awesome gift that he is to us. We thank you for the inexplicable love that you've shown to us. Thank you for rescuing us from our sins. For the abundant life here. God, we thank you for the promise of eternity forever with you. And so as we take the cup and the bread today, as we remember the shed blood of our Lord, and his body given for us. Father, I pray that the very presence of our God would be here in this room. And I pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at harvestberry.ca. And remember, you are loved.